For many people, the most difficult thing of the past couple of years has been how divided we have been. This week on Thinking Biblically, we will see how the Bible provides us with some effective, practical solutions to this problem. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated into exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. This week, I'm on my own as I'm going to be addressing the issue of unity and division. Um, But before I do that, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe and share, review, and comment. You could also send me comments directly at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so we're going to be looking at this very important issue of unity and division. For some people, especially within our congregational settings, uh, many people have been experiencing a, a great amount of division. I've heard about this in families as well. I have my own story, with, uh, particularly with my wife and I in the first several months of, of the COVID restrictions, we were not on the same page, and that was quite difficult. I'm very grateful that we were able to work that through. I've shared that on other occasions. Um, I've heard stories of, of siblings no longer talking to each other and uh, various tensions in, in congregations and this sort of thing. And, and so some people really think they, this is, of course, the, the, the suffering, sickness, and death has been terrible and horrible for those who've been affected by those things. But to, to see this kind of division is very disheartening. And for many, it's, and this is what I've been told, this has actually been the worst thing of all. And so what I want to do is I want us, I want us to see what the Bible has to say about the topic of, of unity and division and how it addresses these things. What, what are God's expectations with regard to unity? What are his solutions with regard to division? So let's look at a few verses, first of all, on the topic of unity. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 reads, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, that's pretty clear. Same mind, same judgment, everyone agree. 1 Peter 3 verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind. There's that same idea again, sympathy, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Uh, one could easily derive from this that a true humble attitude would lead to agreeing with one another. Philippians 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, Paul says again here, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, one mind, same mind. Ephesians 4, 3, uh, Paul again writes, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, certainly unity seems to be a very high value according to these these verses. Uh, Another passage that people go to with regard to the importance of unity is John 17, and that's something we're going to look at a little bit later. It is very important, so we look at it. Um, So obviously it's a huge value, um, but first of all, certainly we have failed. 
there's an expectation that all believers in in Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah, should be united the world over. Well, that isn't happening. Um, there are movements that have tried to make that happen, but even within our own our own individual congregations, how many of us have experienced this level of unity? Well, I actually think our understanding of what unity from God's perspective really is might be faulty. So we want to see what the Bible has to say about this. And it also creates, this kind of idea creates, um, this way of thinking, I should say, creates the idea that we should just all agree. Just all agree. But if we're honest, that's easier said than done. And so we're going to look at some passages that deal with the issue of division, where uh, Paul in particular is, is writing to a couple of different believing communities, one in Rome, one in Corinth, and how he addresses some of their issues of, of division. Now we're going to start with Romans chapter 14. I'm going, to re- I'm going to read the whole chapter. In fact, we're going to go on to verse 1 of chapter 15. I was hoping to just read some excerpts, but I, I don't think there's any way around it. We need to, we need to look at the whole uh passage to see what Paul's saying. So I'm going to read, I'll make some comments as as we go along. So this is Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So when Paul here is talking about weak in faith, he's speaking specifically about eating certain foods. He'll also get into the issue of days. Verse 3, let's not, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." So we see here that we have two different opinions with regard with regards to eating certain foods. It's clear that both these perspectives are acceptable from God's perspective. Let's go on. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So, here again, we see two different types of people. One thinks they could eat anything. The other person uh, has certain scruples about what they eat. And the same thing with days. One group of people think there are certain days to observe. Another group of people think that that's not necessary. But Paul affirms, at least speaking about these particular people, I don't know if he would say this about everyone everywhere all the time, but in the situation he's addressing in Rome, he's acknowledging that these two groups, the, the ones who abstain from foods, the one who eats the foods, the one who observes or doesn't observe the days, that they're all doing it unto the Lord. And of course, these must be things that are legitimately done to the Lord, that we're not talking about overt forms of sinning and saying that they're doing it unto the Lord. Of course not. And since what's going on here is he's speaking into a community that's mixed 
Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. And we know about these people that become that we, we call them the Judaizers. We read about them in the book of Acts and they and they pop up throughout Paul's letters. And the background to that is um, initially when the message of the Messiah was being proclaimed, it was originally proclaimed to within a Jewish context. Eventually, this good news was also shared with non-Jewish people. Now, in the Jewish way of thinking, rooted in Old Testament scripture, it was always fine for non-Jews to believe in the, in the true God, the God of Israel. And there are there are various people that um, remained within their non-Jewish context, but believed in the God of Israel. And it was never thought that these kinds of people, uh, Naaman in the book of Kings, for example, who was healed of his leprosy, it was never thought of that he had to fully embrace the Torah, God's, God's directives through Moses. He didn't have to become part of the Jewish people to, for it to be acknowledged that he was a true a worshiper of the true God. And this continued on into the, the first century. We, we run into these people, as we read, we don't literally run into them. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas are going through the Roman Empire, they usually start um, at a synagogue, if there is one in a particular town. And in these synagogues, there were Jewish people, of course. There were non-Jewish people who had fully embraced the Judaism of that day. They're called proselytes. Then there were also non-Jewish people called God-fearers. These were non-Jewish people who had high esteem for the God of Israel. They had turned from the worship of idols, and and they um, honored the word of God. But they did not want to become full-fledged Jews. The men didn't want to be circumcised and become part of the Jewish people. They wanted to uh, derive as much benefit as they could from the goodness and truth and uh, of God in his word. Um, and, and they were acknowledged as such God-fearers. So then people like Paul and Barnabas appear on the scene, and they share that by believing in the Messiah, Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew, that non-Jews can be fully accepted by God completely. The sense of one day sitting at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They wouldn't be on the outside of things. They wouldn't be a second-class citizen in, in the company of believers. That through the preaching of Messiah, by, by believing in him, they could become fully part of God's family. Now, for some Jewish people, this was a problem because it was viewed that it was okay for them to believe in the God of Israel, and among the new Jewish believers, it was okay for them to believe in the Jewish Messiah. But the idea was if they really wanted to be fully, fully part of what God was doing, to be in the inner circle, so to speak, they had to convert to Judaism. Paul and others saw from the Scriptures, no, that was not necessary. This was not a criticism of Jewish people who believed that they needed to continue to keep the customs that God had spoken through through Moses and some of the other related things that uh, basically the traditions of of our ancestors. And so there were elements of Jewish life that were given by God and elements that were part of the community and 
uh, unless those things went completely against God's word, nothing wrong with Jewish people doing them. But what was wrong was trying to impose these things upon non-Jewish believers in Jesus and, and, and making it as if they cannot be fully part of God's family if they don't fully embrace this full Jewish way of life. So Paul and others, and this was decided in Acts 15, that Paul's perspective on this was the acceptable one. And there were some elements of that decision in Acts 15 that we're going to get to when we go to the next passage in in Corinthians. But for now, with Romans, we're dealing here with a a general sense that you have some people, and and some of them might have been Jewish believers too, that didn't think that it was necessary to keep some of the the food laws, for example. We can get into the specifics of that another time, but for now, let's acknowledge that there's something going on here with the eating of food where some people have certain scruples based on the Word of God, and some people lack those scruples also based on the Word of God. That Paul is acknowledging whether uh, the people were keeping eating the food or keeping the days, they were doing it as they understood their obligation before God. And there were other people that were not doing it as they understood their obligation before God. And you had these two ways of looking at things, opinions, in the same believing community. And Paul was encouraging these two perspectives to have respect for one another. Note, however, that Paul is at the same time is allowing his view to to be clear. He talks about strong in faith and weak in faith, that there is a preferred view, and at the same time he has patience for those who are not fully accepting that, they believe they needed to to still keep certain things or or observe certain things, but what what he's affirming here is each of these groups, and this is so important, that they believe that God has commanded these things, and that is why they're doing it. This is not personal preference. This is conviction before God and should be, and that should be honored, even though we may not agree with the other viewpoint. So let's see, I'm not sure where I left off. So I'll go to verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so we need to be very careful not to stand over other believers in their attempt to please the Lord. This Again, he's not talking here about people involved in serious sinful activity. There's other passages that deal with that sort of thing and how we should relate to people who are pursuing sin. He's dealing with differences of opinion when it comes to things that, it comes to matters where people are seeking to please God. And he's saying that both of these perspectives are legitimate. Verse 13, 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is going to come up in the Corinthians passage too, this idea of stumbling block. What a stumbling block is, is there might be somebody that I, in my community, who has certain scruples from God, not, not simply about something that's superstitious, not something about something that's actually wrong, but it's this sort of thing where, where they believe God said, I need to do this, or God says in his word, I, I don't need to do this. And uh, um, actually more, God says in his word, I need to do this. And then somebody else thinks, well, that's not really necessary. Uh, you're, you're, you're going overboard. Um, we don't need to do that anymore. Or that's not really for us. These sorts of ideas. Well, the person that has this sense of freedom, we don't really need to do this anymore. If he's aware, he or she is aware that somebody else feels before God that they must do something, the person who has this sense of freedom should not try to undermine the other person's scruple in such a way that the person with the scruple would be tempted to do to to um, to embrace that freedom to not do what they think they should do because you're doing it. So we shouldn't say to people, "Ah, you, you don't have to do that." Now, nah, that's not really important. When we know that they have this conviction before God, have a have a Bible study with them, discuss these things, let let people come to conclusions, yes. But when somebody has a strong conviction, we need to be careful not to live our lives in such a way that they are going to go against their conviction. And that's what a a stumbling block is, creating a situation where somebody else is going to do something that to them is sinful. I know and I'm persuaded, verse 14, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By, by, uh, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So, we have to be careful that we don't create these situations where other people go against what they think they should not do. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything in, is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so the person that has this freedom to do, to do whatever um, should be willing to give that up for the scruples of others. Now, this is not a call to give up just about anything because it bugs somebody. We're not talking about somebody bugged by something that we that we might like. We're talking about things that are clearly to do with God's word and people's convictions. And even then, so let's let's say you feel free um, to to watch certain movies. And I encourage people: this is not uh, um, a, an excuse uh, to uh, give ourselves over to enjoying the celebration of very illicit things. You decide if I have, if my scruples are too high. <laughs> but if, if, um, but some people feel because of the, the entertainment industry is so, um, is, is so filled with, with terrible things, I should stay away 
I should stay away from it completely. It's not for me to, to try to make it like it's nothing. And so maybe um, at least I should keep my conviction about entertainment to myself. And um, if that person is over, I don't encourage them to engage in what I think is, is fine to do. And another similar kind of illustration, just in understanding how we should be sensitive to one another. Let's say somebody has been an alcoholic or still is an alcoholic, uh, but they're, they're, they're dry. They, they're, they haven't been drinking for, for a long time. We know from the scriptures, so there's nothing wrong with social drinking. Uh, the directors in scripture is, are not to get drunk, uh, but it's pretty clear that, that uh, the drinking of, of wine and, is, is fine in and of itself. Now, am I talking to somebody who has a problem with that? Because I'm not encouraging you to do it. If I have a friend who has a real issue with it, then not only should I not offer them a drink when they come to my house, maybe I should be very, very discreet by the fact that I feel the freedom to do this. The more you get into this, it's, it's not an easy subject. But the point is we need to be careful not to create situations that's going to cause somebody else to sin. And so for the, the alcoholic, one drink leads, could easily lead to more drinks, which leads to drunkenness, which is sinful, and it's very, very bad for them. I hope I explained that well. There may be a better way to explain that. Um, I'm going to verse 20. Maybe I read this already. Do not, for the sake of God, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The way the word faith is being used here has to do with our trusting loyalty unto God. And so anything that does not come out of that relationship to God is sin. And then it can end with verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again, I keep saying again, this is about these kinds of matters that have to do with people's welfare. I brought up the issue of 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 the alcoholic, and issues where people have convictions about what the scripture says, about what God wants for their lives. And so those of those of us that don't share those convictions need to be very, very careful not to impose our sense of freedom upon others who believe they need to be more careful about these things. And so note here, we're not dealing with things such as fear. We're not dealing, I mentioned earlier, like superstitions. We're still supposed to be teaching God's truth. And people have different opinions over God's truth. We need to be teaching what God's word really says. We'll get into that a little bit more. But the the divisions that Paul was trying to, to resolve uh, was the damage that some people who were doing, who were more laissez-faire about certain things, believing rightly 
that they were justified with this level of freedom that they had and that they needed to be more kind and patient and discreet among other people. Let's now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And it's a it's a similar it's similar but different. Paul again writes, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And so now he's talking about food sacrificed to idols. Now that might have been a factor in the Romans 14 passage when it talked about eating certain foods. My sense is there he's talking more about what we now call kosher food versus non-kosher food. We hear it specifically about this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And in case you're not familiar with that, in the Roman Empire, it was common when you went to the meat market that the meat that was being sold had previously been dedicated to idols. And among Jewish people, it was thought of as, that's wrong. How can you eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? And so in Acts 15, they decided that this was one of the things that non-Jewish believers, non-Jewish followers of the Messiah should abstain from. They should not eat this meat. Now, Paul gets into this further because he shows, and it's referenced a bit in, in Romans 14, and here that actually, in reality, nothing happens to that meat. The meat does not itself become spiritually tainted. The real issue is in how is in what people are thinking about that meat. So if you really think that an idol is something and you make that connection and then eat the meat, then you're sinning. But if you understand it's just meat, the idols are nothing, the dedication to the idol does nothing, and in your mind that's what's going on, it's, and you eat, then it's okay. Again, I don't want to get too much into this 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 in particular because we want to stay on this issue of division and unity so i'll read it again now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but knowledge builds up if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves god he is known by god so that's this is referring to the person that realizes uh, maybe you heard paul talk about this and you, the meat's nothing the, the meat's not tainted by these false gods, the, the dedication to the idols doesn't do anything. And then he goes around telling everybody. But the people um, really don't think they should eat the meat. They're actually, they're, that's been tainted by the false god and I better not eat it. And so you don't go and just kind of push people into doing what you just think is okay. So this is similar to the Romans 14 passage in this way. Verse 4, Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no god but one. For although there may be so-called gods in, in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through f- former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled." is what I've been talking about. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? That's the whole stumbling block thing. So use 
realize it's nothing, it's not going to affect me, but somebody else who has this, who believes that it does, and then gets encouraged to eat, that person would be sinning. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So, Paul is encouraging those who think that this is a nothing for the sake of unity connection, relationship with believers who are convinced that they shouldn't eat this, the person who thinks it's nothing should actually abstain. Remember, this all has to do with elements directly associated with our relationship to God. It's very important to remember, whether it is specifically about God's Word, about foods and days from the books of Moses, or about pagan uh, relating to these pagan customs has this is all connected to how best do i serve god so before we get further into what biblical unity really is and how to live that out and how to deal with the division we're going to look at a passage that deals with dealing with conflict and this is Two chapters back in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm reading verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints, of course, the saints are holy ones, these are believers. Just a way to talk about believers. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So the situation here is in the community, the believing community of the city of Corinth, people were having grievances against one another and it looks like it has to do with business issues, property issues, the sorts of things that you would, um, that you would sue somebody over. And Paul is distraught that they're taking their cases to the non-believing civil courts rather than dealing with these grievances among them, among themselves. Now, he's going to come to a bit of a crescendo with this. And there's, there's, there's a problem here in that a lot of people seem to think that Paul's crescendo that has to do more with his frustration with how the Corinthians are behaving, that that crescendo is supposed to be uh, the interpretation of the whole matter. It'll become clear as we go along. Verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? So that's that's the crescendo that Paul's saying, like, you've already lost because you're having these grievances. Aren't you better off allowing yourselves to be defrauded? 
So what he's saying here is, is we have issues with one another, and we offend one another, and things happen, and we do wrong unto one another. Where appropriate, just, you know, bear the brunt yourself. But he's not saying this in, in an absolute sense. Remember, his, the reason why he addressed this issue is they were taking their lawsuits to the civil courts rather than dealing it within their own believing community. He's not completely contradicting. He's not co- intending to contradict himself by saying, so first he says, don't you have people among you that can settle your differences? Um, and then he says, well, for, he's not saying, well, forget that. Forget I said that. Just allow yourself to be defrauded. There is no way that Paul is encouraging them to to allow great injustices to occur within these believing communities. Uh, take for example, there's a, if there's a situation where there's a, a wealthy business owner in in a church, and every summer he hires several uh, summer uh, students and uh, they work for him and then a couple of them for whatever reason decides i'm not going to pay them is paul saying that these poor students are simply to be oppressed by the wealthy business owner or is he saying that this these students the ones who are ripped off should be able to go to the church leadership explain what had happened and then the church leadership should uh, um, initiate a process whereby there is a resolution uh, to their claim. Is he is Paul telling these people or others who have been uh, greatly abused uh, or or oppressed by others in the congregation? Is he telling people simply to you know the Lord died for our sins? You should you should take these sins upon yourself. Are we supposed to tell? Uh, uh, women abused by men, sexually abused by church leaders, to just kind of suck it up? Is that really what you think Paul is saying here? When he talks about, isn't it better for you to be defrauded, it, he's exaggerating his point, encouraging people to put up with more and not to be so sensitive and not to be so reactive and to be patient with one another and, and try to quietly and not secretively, but you know, try to work out your problems as best as possible. And, and there's so many areas of life where we might get offended by one another that is no big, really should be no big deal. And so let's not be so sensitive, let's not be so reactive. But Paul is not saying don't deal with serious problems. What he is encouraging believing communities to do is to set up... Um, to, to set up a way to resolve those problems, to resolve those conflicts. And it seems to me that's something that we haven't been very good at. So when people talk about the lack of unity during these COVID days, what a lot of people seem to be saying, and I can't speak for everyone, if this has been you, you know what you've been saying. You send me an email, let's, let's talk about this. But for a lot of people, they see divisions. They see the people that are against this, the people who are for that, the people who are scared, the people who are not so scared, and there's and there's tension. And and people get upset by the tension and they respond with, oh, can't we just all get along? Years ago, I was in conflict with a, a leader of a of a of a fledgling 
uh, congregation, and we had some serious differences. We had some serious concerns with one another. And somebody who was part of this, this group for a, a little while took us aside, wanting to talk to us. That's fine. And basically, we got told that we're just acting like children and we should stop it. Now, I'm sure there's a time and a place to say that when people are focused on petty differences. I'm aware that there have been congregations split over things such as what color the new carpet should be. And maybe if you've been through that, you have a reason why that wasn't so petty. But there are things that are petty. A congregation split because somebody uh, thinks maybe we should move the 11 o'clock service to 10 o'clock. And again, maybe you have reasons of why that's a problem. But, but And if it is, there should be a way to address those problems and not simply say, and either not simply storm off because we're not getting our way, and then other people going, well, why can't they all just get along as if all differences are petty? Because they're not. There are some serious issues that we often have to deal with. Um, and just this is this verse is a little reflective of God's not calling us in our fellowships to simply um let things be the way they are. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So we, we like to go to the be patient with them all, and we should be patient, including how we admonish the idle. So lazy people should not be left to be lazy. They need to be lovingly told off and redirected even encouraging the faint-hearted. We're not to leave the faint-hearted faint-hearted. These are the scared ones. And one of the things about these past two years, we have a lot of scared people. One of my concerns is here where I live in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, we're seeing the beginning of restrictions being relaxed. Um, I'm, I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to more and more of that. But it's possible businesses, schools, clubs, restaurants, congregations, many of them are going to want to keep some of these restrictions. And maybe in some situations, it's appropriate. But if the motive is fear, if we're simply the faint-hearted, is, is, that, is, is that where we're supposed to stay? And are, are we supposed to allow the faint-hearted to determine the directions of our communities. We're supposed to encourage the faint-hearted, which is, um, is to in, instill courage into them. It's, a, it's an, and strengthening. We should not be leaving people in their fear. We need to be calling them unto strength. Faith and fear do not go together. Either we're going to be driven by fear or we're going to live by faith. And remember, anything that's not a faith, if it's not derived from our commitment to the Lord, His Word, His truth, His ways, it's sin. And fear is never that. And so we need to learn to deal with conflict. An interesting, uh, another interesting verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Uh, this is where Paul is speaking about how they were running their meetings, and it looks like people were talking on top of one another and interrupting one another. Um, and 
what was supposed to be done is people were to give it an opportunity to share, to 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 pray, and, and to to speak God's word unto one another. A lot of our congregations don't practice that sort of thing. I have been part of congregations that do. Um, and so here's what Paul says to them. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. The word in the English Standard Version that I'm reading for weigh is similar to the word similar to the word for judge in when in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. And so there's a time to judge, and there's a time not to judge. And one of the times there is to judge is when people are claiming to speak God's word. So there was an, there was an expectation on, uh, from Paul that when somebody stood up and said, either I believe this is what God's saying, or this is what I understand this passage to mean, or they might even say, thus says the Lord, it was not expected that people would go, Amen. They were to listen to what this person was saying and make their own judgment. And if this was a congregation that tended to speak over one another, even though Paul was getting them to be what we might call more polite about all this, I would imagine that there would be verbal interaction over these kinds of disagreements. And it seems to me from the scriptures like this that that's okay rather than this this sort of thing is just kind of let everything go and don't don't uh, don't stir things up and don't cause trouble this sort of thing but if 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 we don't learn to interact with one another uh properly patiently lovingly in a determination to find out what god is really saying then we're not really functioning as god's people it's interesting Luke uh, makes this comment in Acts 17, 11, and it's an interesting reflection about the great apostle Paul. He writes, Now these Jews, the Jews in this town called Berea, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There is no expectation on the part of, of the writer of Acts, Luke, anyway, that the noble thing would be to hear what Paul said and simply accept it. Paul said it, that settles it. No, they were to compare what Paul was saying to the scriptures, which were the Hebrew scriptures, the old, what we now call the Old Testament. I call it the Hebrew scriptures. They were to examine what Paul was really saying. And there that is that it's the reason why I mentioned all this is if we're ever going to settle our conflicts, we need to learn to intelligently engage God's word and engage one another. It means we're going to have to deal with our differences and deal with our conflicts, bearing with one another patiently, lovingly, but deal with it. Unity in the scriptures is not simply just letting everything happen the way it should and let's just all get along. Uh, it, it's not, it's, we're not just to be like some sort of social blob we're to be an interactive community pursuing God's truth, as it says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. And that would be another interesting passage to look at because that's talking about spiritual maturity and the height of spiritual maturity. Look it up yourself. The height of spiritual maturity is speaking the truth in love. And yet, what's, it seems what a lot of people seem to want in the pers- their pursuit of, of unity for our communities is to sacrifice the truth on the so-called altar of love. And scripturally speaking, we should never, 
We are never called to to sacrifice truth for love's sake. We could put truth ahead of love in a hurtful sort of way and begin to ram, try to ram down truth, ram truth down people's throats. You can see how delicate Paul was about what he was saying about the weak and the strong. He had his viewpoint, but he was still gentle about it. But he didn't compromise what he believed in explaining how these differences, these these kinds of differences, should be dealt with. Well, speaking of kinds of differences, we have the differences that we've been facing over over COVID, and particularly about the COVID rules that have been imposed upon our society. Whatever, wherever you are, whatever government regulations are in effect where you live, we're still called to pursue truth. Now, it's not easy to discern, especially when we're dealing with things of scientific nature and these, you know, health protocols. And, and if, you, if you look at what, uh, what the experts say, if you actually read studies and things, we're still dealing with this microscopic virus that people are still learning about. It's, it's kind of strange. Like even saying that, you're not, you're not, it's like you're not even allowed to say that what we understand about all this is in process because everything that gets dictated to us, we're supposed to accept that that it's been, you know, they talk about the science being settled and following the science. And, and, and when you start to say, but science doesn't even work that way. Science is an ongoing discovery. And we've been in this for two years. And, and what was being said at the beginning compared to some months later, compared to months later after that, keeps changing. Uh, it's okay to do this, not okay to do that. This is better than that, and so on. And can't we accept that our understanding of the mechanics of, of COVID has have developed over the years? Um, and, and, and why is it even wrong to say that it appears it appears that some of these decision decisions are more politically charged than than scientifically um, uh, influenced. We live in a very politicized world, and that's just a fact. And and shouldn't we wonder about the the profit motive? Oh no no no! You're not even allowed to talk about that now. Just because somebody has a profit motive, I need to say this. I wasn't even thinking of bringing it up. All I'm saying is, in our pursuit of truth. There are factors. There's things that we have learned about big business, for example, and, and how they bring product to market. And we know from the past that that's been true with the pharmaceutical industry, as just like every other industry. Now, just because there's profit motive doesn't mean people are, are, are um, trying to uh, get us to take their products for nefarious purposes. It doesn't mean that. But... There has always been this idea, at least for a long time, buyer beware. The idea that you, the consumer, are responsible to make your own decision about what you consume. We should not simply uh, put things into our body because somebody says so, the government says so, uh, the pharmaceutical companies say, uh, say so. It's, it's never been, and I've talked about that before in, in, in earlier podcasts, that, that God's imbued us with this call to individual responsibility and and we don't exist as individuals by ourselves but and 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 let's take this on to to our communities because we're not supposed to do this all by ourselves our our communities should be pursuing the truth 
Our communities should be brave enough to disagree with prevailing narratives. What to do when we make those discoveries are another thing. Should we be humble about what we believe in our conclusions? Sure. Should we be open to additional information? Absolutely. But here's the point. I have the impression you would know better. Maybe you want to share some of your, uh, some of your church experiences over the past two years with me. Write me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. You could, you want to be, want write confidentially, not confidentially. It's up to you. I'd love to read some of your stories uh, on a future podcast. Um, but one of the features of a biblically based congregation is the pursuit of truth, and it should be the truth about everything that affects our lives, and especially when it comes to uh, the, the the health and safety of people. Now. Most of the time, this should be not our concern uh, because there are many things in the society that, many of them, that are neither here nor there. But when we're dealing with new medical treatments and, and how that's affecting various age categories, all these various things, and that the powers that be, is the government powers, are trying to, uh, they obviously have been seeking to coerce the society along a certain way, shouldn't leaders of other people, pastoral leaders, do sufficient research to know how to properly um, speak to their people? And all I'm, all I'm calling for is we need to be people of love and truth together and not sacrifice truth in the name of so-called love. Because implementing a policy in the name of love with really not carefully examining uh, what this is really all about is this mindless, misguided attempt at so-called love. True love must be based on reality, on truth. And so, when we talk about, oh, how divided we are, we need to see that that division is, is different from some of the divisions that we read about here in, these, in uh, Romans 14 and in, in 1 Corinthians 8. In those cases, we're dealing with things that were directly to do with conviction about what God says in His Word, and conviction unto God, the, the issue of idols and and whether idols affect the meat we consume. And, and so you had people of, of differing convictions in the same community, and Paul was trying to teach them how to get along with one another, honoring each other's convictions. The divisions that we've been dealing with in these past two years of COVID have been divisions that have been imposed upon us from the outside. This is, this is not about what God's Word says. Oh, doesn't God, God's Word say we should obey the government? I've done a podcast on that. Look it up. Romans 13 tells us to respect government, but it never tells us to, to obey them in an absolute sense about anything and everything, no matter what they ever say. That we're not called to play, Simon says, with the government. In the case with the COVID rules, 
This has come from the outside, where government, not God, has sought to control our lives within our congregations. And that has created division. And so it's incumbent upon the leaders of these congregations to properly analyze from a biblical perspective what are the implications of these rules and how best, if at all, to implement them within our congregations, rather than, than basically uh, getting out of the way as leadership, letting the people just relate and react to whatever, never talk about it within our fellowships, and then just kind of, and then wring our hands because we're divided. As I've been saying, leadership along with the people need to pursue the truth with regard to these things. It's not easy, but it can be done. And it can be done especially if we are united in the way that the Lord prayed we would be united. And so I want to briefly look at John 17. We're not going to do the whole passage, but I want to look at the unity sections of John 17. For a lot of people, this is the key passage to do with the topic of unity. It's believed that when when Jesus, shortly before he was arrested and, and executed, when he prayed this prayer, which included a prayer for unity, that if only God's people would experience this unity with one another that he prayed for, then God's going to do all these incredible things through us. But I, I think that interpretation is misguided, and I'll explain. So the second half of verse 11 of, of John 17, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So there's the idea that among other things in that passage, he's praying that we would be one. What does that mean? Let's go on. I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's us too. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And so this is an incredible unity he's talking about here. He's saying that the unity that his followers are supposed to experience are like the unity that, that he has with his father. And that's a very profound, it's a deep, intimate unity. But is he praying that we would be united with one another this way? Now, the call to be united is clear. We read some verses at the beginning. Be of one mind. I believe being of one mind can only happen when we work through our differences, when we put away petty differences, when we're willing to be patient uh, and sensitive to people's scruples, and put up with one another, and then we effectively deal with real conflict, as well as pursue truth. So unity is important, and I believe those are the ways to achieve it. What kind of unity is Jesus praying for? Well, it says, back in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, I am 
are in me and I in you, that they may, sorry, that they also may be in us. The Lord wants us to be united. But in John 17, he's not praying for our unity with one another. He's praying that we would be united with God. And that's what he came for. He came to restore us to right relationship with his heavenly Father. He was praying that the intimacy of relationship that he had with the Father in his earthly life that we would experience the same thing. That just like he said, whatever I see the Father do, I do. Whatever I hear the Father say, I say. And he was so committed in every way to whatever the Father was telling him to do. He was about what the Father wanted him to be about. His number one desire was to please his Father. And that's why he was able to love people effectively. And that's why he was able to give himself unto death. And that's why he was raised from the dead, because he was completely wrapped up in his relationship with the Father. And that was the very core of everything that he was about. And as he was getting ready to pass on his ministry to all of us, his prayer was that we would know God in the same way. And while that's not a prayer of unity with one another, it's the key to unity with one another. The picture I have is, is like a wheel with a hub and spokes. We're the spokes. God's the hub. And if we are properly all connected to the hub, then we're one big happy wheel. We are united in Him. Our unity must be in Him. That's how we are then able to deal with our differences. And I believe we need to take a careful look at how we've been behaving these past couple of years. If we are divided, we need to ask the question, have we really sought God? Have we really sought His will? Are we seeking to please Him or are we seeking to please ourselves? Are we controlled by our fear? Are we controlled about the fear of what might happen to others? Or are we being led by our trust in Him and then be willing to do whatever He wants us to do? And so whether I mask or I unmask, I mask or unmask unto the Lord. But are we doing this unto the Lord? Or are we more committed to our perception of the science? Are we more concerned with pleasing government? How many of us are more concerned about our insurance policies, our buildings, uh, uh, getting or maybe getting arrested, getting shamed, all this sort of thing? Are we more focused on that? And the temptation is there, believe me, I understand this. Are we more focused on that or are we focused on unto the Lord. And once we're focused unto the Lord and we are truly seeking Him and letting Him speak to us with all the surprises that might include, He's going to lead us to pursue uh, the truth in His Word better. He's going to lead us to confront the lies in our society more effectively. He's going to give us the courage if we'd let Him to lead our people in courage and in faith. What do you think? Let me know. Put your comments in the comment section. Email me at comments 
comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And that's it for now. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. <music>